I'd invite you again to take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, where we've been for several weeks and will be for a few more weeks. As we follow the Gospel readings and the lectionary texts for this season, we find ourselves in Matthew 21. This morning, the text begins at verse 33 and takes us all the way through verse 46. If you're able and with us this morning, um, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's Word. Jesus is speaking and says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. Then he rented it to to tenant farmers and took a trip. When it was time for harvest, he sent his servants to the tenant farmers to collect his fruit. But the tenant farmers grabbed his servants. They beat some of them, and some of them they killed. Some of them they stoned to death. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first group. They treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, Oh, this is the heir. Come on, let's kill him and we'll have his inheritance. They grabbed him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenant farmers? They responded, He will totally destroy those wicked farmers and rent the vineyard to other tenant farmers who will give him the fruit when it's ready. Jesus said to them, Haven't you ever read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that God's kingdom will be taken away from you and will be given to a people who produce its fruit. Whoever falls on the stone will be crushed, and the stone will crush the person it falls on. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parable, they knew Jesus was talking about them. They were trying to arrest him, but they feared the crowds who thought he was a prophet. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So just a reminder of where we are in the text today and kind of where we'll be for at least a couple more weeks. Last week, we looked at, in chapter 21, uh, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and I said last week, I think we're to read this text in Matthew, much like the early readers would probably understand that um, a few uh, decades, a century and a half or so before, Judas Maccabeus, a kind of messianic figure, had taken his followers up into the mountains to sort of train and get ready for a revolution, and then they came down into Jerusalem, cleansed the temple of the Greek worship that was going on there, and established for a time a kingdom, if you will, a renewal, a a movement, only to later be crushed by the Romans. Um, But what we end up with is Jesus taking disciples up into the mountains, training them, giving them a whole set of teaching about what this kingdom will look like. And it's confusing to them because it's turned upside down. But now in chapter 21, they have come into Jerusalem, a, a kind of triumphant entry, if you will, as triumphant as a donkey can be. Um, They come into Jerusalem, Jesus cleanses the temple, and then last week we get this question from the priests and the leaders of the temple, what in the world are you doing? Who gave you authority to do this? And as we saw, Jesus begins to teach them about how hard it is for religious folk to get converted. 
and that there is a kind of conversion that these two, the parable of the two sons tells about a son who said, well, I'm not going to go into your vineyard, but then he changes his mind, is converted, and goes. But then there's another son who acts like he's going and says yes, but he never had any intention to go in the first place and did not go. And so, in these weeks of chapters 21 and 22, we have what Matthew puts together are a number of conflict stories between, and here we still see the priests and teachers of the law. So, this is a continuation of last week's uh, parable, of last week's teaching. But by the time we get to the end, the Pharisees have sort of snuck in the back door and are now part of the conversation too. And so, we'll see that Pharisees are included next week and then in a couple of weeks, even the Sadducees get in on it. And so, what we are talking about in these two or three, four weeks together in chapters 21 and 22 of Matthew is basically this. These are religious people who are having trouble entering into the kingdom. In fact, Jesus says, listen, prostitutes and tax collectors, they're getting in way before you. And so, what I want us to reflect on and is this question, why is it so hard to convert Christians? Why is it so hard for us to be converted? So if you go back to the text for today, Jesus tells them another parable. Now, it's kind of interesting as parables go, because most of the time when I think of parables, I think of stories that Jesus tells that are both revealing but also a little bit confusing. So, so often when Jesus tells parables, he'll tell a parable like the four soils, for example, and the the indiscriminate farmer who sows seed in these four different soils. And then when he gets to the end of it, the disciples will pull him aside and go, Oi? What in the world was that about? Explain to us the meaning of the parable of the four soils. And so oftentimes parables are there to kind of reveal something mysterious about the kingdom, but also to confuse us a little bit, and Jesus has to kind of explain it away or help us understand. These two parables, there's no conversation on the side that says, what was that about? These parables are actually stories that everybody understands. In fact, I would put these under the categories of parables that make everyone mad. Parables that get you killed because they're so clear. Um, this parable combines what for his original audience would have been very well-known scriptures. I'll say this every once in a while, but I think it's, fully hard, it's hard for us to fully appreciate how we, in a kind of written culture, tend to not know the Scripture very well. But part of that is because we have so many copies of it on our shelf. Um, I, have, I have no idea how many translations of the Bible on my shelf, not counting all the programs on my phone and available to me on my laptop. And because of that, I don't necessarily like probably many of you, commit it to memory and heart because I already know it's right there. And so I'm not sure we appreciate fully how an oral culture lived and dwelt among, listened to, and had the Scripture so woven down deep into them that as Jesus tells this parable, they didn't have to go, oh, I think I remember that. Where do I remember that? Um, let me do a word search on Bible Gateway. Like it's woven in their heart. And so as Jesus tells this parable, there are three places in the Scripture that I'm convinced they would have completely known and understood. And the first is Isaiah, the fifth chapter, where Isaiah talks about God's people, talks about Israel as though they are a vineyard that God has planted and put a wall around them and a watchtower to guard them. 
And so as soon as Jesus starts this parable about a vineyard and an owner and a watchtower and a gate around it, they're all going, bing, 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 Isaiah 5. I know this parable is about us, about God's people. And here's essentially how we understand it. That God has given to us creation, but if you're Israel, God has also given to you a land, but it is not yours. In fact, the scripture repeats that over and over and over and again. It is not yours. You are aliens and strangers on the land. The land is mine, says the Lord. And that's a very important part of the parable. The church is not mine. The church is not yours. The church is God's. The world, the creation, all that God has given us, we are stewards of all the good gifts of God. They are not ours. And Israel understands, oh yeah, we get it. God has given us a mission in the world. He has even put us in a land, but it is not our land. And we were there as kind of tenant farmers. And the goal was to to work in the vineyard the way God wanted us to work in the vineyard and then give back to God the fruit of the vineyard, not just in a kind of giving of offerings. But we were to work in the vineyard the way the vineyard owner wanted the vineyard to produce and to flourish. But also, they would remember Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is this beautiful psalm about the faithfulness of God to God's people. But as you get towards the end of the psalm, it goes like this. But the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the psalm is not just an exploration and a celebration of God's faithfulness to them, but it's a way of saying, look, and this is hard for us, again, to fully appreciate in the 21st century because we build homes and structures so differently We have a kind of foundation that spreads out the tension of a building. But in the first century, the way you built structures is you had to first go find a cornerstone. A stone that would be hewn out of the rock. And it had to be the right size and shape and especially strength and weight. Because you would begin to build all the walls in such a way that it leaned on and came from the cornerstone. So if the cornerstone was the wrong shape, the wall would fall. And if it was not strong enough or sturdy enough or heavy enough, the whole wall would shift because all of the weight was leaning upon the cornerstone. And so the image is, it's as though everybody looked around and said, who are the people? What is the culture? What is the history that we can build all of life upon? And they looked at empire after empire after empire, and they tried to build on this one and this one, but every time they looked at Israel, they went, "Eh." no, no way, no way. Small, little, puny nation, constantly on the margins, constantly being misused. There's no way, like that's not what you build a whole empire upon. But the psalm celebrates, we who are so overlooked, we are the cornerstone upon which God is doing his work, Right? And now Jesus is using that same statement to say, listen, here we are again. God is building his kingdom, his new creation, and Jesus is essentially saying, on me. And you are rejecting me, but this is going to be, as we'll sing in just a little bit, the cornerstone upon which, and what Paul will celebrate, the cornerstone upon which all of God's new creation is built. The third text is Daniel chapter 2. It's a crazy story about the king having a dream. Have you ever had those moments where you wake up and you know you've had a dream that must have been really important? Because you wake up like in a cold sweat or you wake up wanting to quit your job, right? 
or you wake up wanting to move or something. Like, you know something bad happened in my dream, but you cannot for the life of you remember what it was. Daniel chapter 2, the king has a dream like that. Now, in the story of Joseph, Joseph comes and interprets Pharaoh's dream, but Pharaoh remembered his dream. Daniel chapter 2 is crazy. The king keeps breaking out in a cold sweat every morning, but he cannot, when he wakes up, remember what the dream was. And so he looks throughout the land, not only for somebody who can interpret the dream, but for somebody who can remind him of the dream that they didn't have, but he had. It's a great story. And Daniel is amazing. Daniel shows up, and he not only can interpret the king's dream, but he can tell him what it was. And the king goes, oh, totally, that was the dream. But it was a dream of this massive statue made of various kinds of metals. And Joseph interprets it as a dream about various empires that will be built. But then there is this last empire that is the feet of this great statue. And it is made of iron, but it is also made of clay. That's where we get the statement, having feet of clay, by the way. And in Daniel chapter 2, this stone comes and smashes those feet, the statue tumbles, breaks into pieces, with the image being this, there will be lots of empires in history, and they will all come and go. But there is one cornerstone upon which all of human history is built, the messenger of God, (laughs) the son of God, who will be the cornerstone upon which all is built. Are you with me? Right? So the meaning is clear, right? He gives them this parable rooted in three important texts in their life. He's telling this parable and he sets it up in such a way that that what we have are these folks who were supposed to care for the vineyard, but they didn't. And they kept trying to take ownership of it, sort of like Adam and Eve trying to take possession of what is good and evil. But God refuses to kind of give up on them. So he keeps sending messengers, prophets to come and to say, get your act together, Stop acting like you own the vineyard. Do what you were supposed to do. Now, for just a minute, I have to kind of take a side note here and talk a little bit about prophets again. We've talked about this in the past. But in Israel's life, there are three main offices of leadership. They had judges for a while, but after that period is over, they have three offices that are central to the life and leadership of Israel. Kings, priests, and prophets. Now, kings obviously lead the people, but here's the problem. God wasn't real thrilled that they have kings because kings inevitably do this. They inevitably get us to trust other things than God for our security. They inevitably get us to worship economies and to think that our value is in how much wealth and money and power we have. And so kings have a tendency, read the Old Testament. There's like three good ones, but the rest of them, not very good. And they lead our hearts away from trust in God. Now, you would think that the priests would be helpful, but they're not. For the priests have a tendency to get in cahoots with the king. So, as I say to students every semester, here's the problem. Solomon is leading the people astray, and you would think the priest would say something, but the problem is he's building a really beautiful temple. And have you seen my office? It is so nice. It's going to have a window view of Jerusalem, the whole city, right? He's got a retirement plan for priests. Oh, right? Like priests have a hard time standing up to power. (laughs) By the way, 
just to get in trouble this morning, that has plagued Christian history forever. It's very difficult for priests to stand and speak to power, especially when that power benefits us. So along come the prophets. Crazy, insane. But they come and they say to the king, no, do what God wants shepherds of people to do. And they say to priests, like in Isaiah, knock it off. Who cares about your feasts and your sacrifices and all of your new moons and convocations? They make me sick to my stomach. I put fingers in my ears and go, la, 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 la. I'm sick of your songs. Knock it off. Do justice. Love mercy. Right? The prophets come and speak to both of those. But what happened? Well, there's a paradigm that is supposed to happen. Actually, it's why we still think David's okay. Because one of the initial prophets, you remember David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then he kills Uriah. Nathan comes to his house and says, I have a story for you. One of those stories that is understandable. There's a man who has all these sheep and a neighbor who has one little lamb. And that man envies and covets that little lamb even though he has all these sheep. And so he plots and he has his neighbor killed and he steals the lamb for himself. And David says, oh, that is awful. Tell me who he is and I will kill him right now. We will have justice today. And Nathan says, you're the man. You the man, right? That's where that phrase comes from. You the man. Now David, in that moment, could have said, Put an ad in the paper. We're getting a new prophet. Have Nathan killed. For that's usually what happens to prophets. But why part of the reason we love David so much is because he was a religious person able to be converted. And who said, oh, 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 <laughs> Have mercy on me, oh God. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there are wicked ways in me. Right? But Jesus says that's not really how things functioned. <laughs> Every time a prophet came along, your ancestors had them killed. Threw them out, stoned them to death. And now... The God of mercy who just won't quit on the vineyard he planted has sent his son. But can I tell you how this story is going to end? <laughs> Will you repent? Will you confess? No, you'll throw him out. You'll kill him too. And so I have a question for you religious leaders. What do you think the owner of the vineyard should do? It's not a hard answer. So obvious, they get it. Well, he'll probably throw them out and find somebody else to take over the vineyard. This is a hard parable because we have a tendency, and I would say even throughout Christian history, we've had a tendency to read it as a parable that's over. It's a parable about how God had been working through Israel, but they rejected his prophets, and then they killed Jesus. 
so I want to be careful here, but I, have a, I think across Christian history, we've tended to use this parable in horrible anti-Semitic ways. And we've read it to say, oh, right, God tried to work through Israel, but now God has moved on. And he's found some new workers in the vineyard. And the Gentiles, that's us. We're in the vineyard now. And thanks be to God, we've cared for the vineyard the way God would want the vineyard cared for. I think that's a really bad reading of the parable. And I think if we're going to stand before it today, we have to ask, how are the patterns that we see that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew repeated still for us. For I marvel at this parable at the tenacious graciousness of God who refuses to give up on we, the tenant farmers in the vineyard, and who keeps sending prophetic voices. And by the way, I never stop marveling at prophetic voices who are willing to receive the call of God and take the risk, knowing exactly what happens to prophets to keep calling us back to God's purposes. But this morning, and and just briefly, I'm struck by two things. The first is the tenacious blindness generation after generation in the parable. You would think along the line, one of those generations would have said, this isn't really working very well. And even the last generation in the parable should have said, this is a great plan, we'll kill the sun, and then everything will be fine. (laughs) Like, that's the dumbest plan ever. Jesus even says, what do you think the vineyard owner is going to do? But you would think that somewhere along the line, there would be receptivity to the prophet. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. There is a tenacious blindness from generation to generation. And secondly, as we are blind to that, we have to guard against what is our reaction to the voice of the prophet. Again, why is it so hard for Christians to be converted? And not only converted, why can Christians so often be so angry and at times even violent towards the prophetic voice calling us back to the heart of God? So let me just think about those two things quickly. So I told you last week that I, um, there's some conversions that have gone on in my life over the last several years. And one of the ones that's going on right now is a sense that that we probably, especially a book written by and written to folks on the margins, we should listen to voices on the margins as they read and interpret the text and don't do enough of that. And so this summer, especially um, with a little space and time and with all of the issues, especially around issues of race going on, I, I have been reading more and more about our history and issues of race in, in our communities And I've tried to read kind of multiple sides, and I've read some novels, and I've read some history, and I just keep kind of following a trail. And and I'm doing that simply because of this. I I want to understand. I I want to know. I I want to be able to discern. And so I I shared with you that one of the books I read was John Meacham's new biography of, um, of John Lewis. 
And after I was done, my mom's reading it. And so we were talking about it. And, uh, and as we were talking about it, my mom said to me, this book is so fascinating because it's my teenage years, right? It's my young adult years. I remember all these things that happened. Now, I'm struck when I read it that it's in my lifetime. Those events happened since I've been born, most of them. But my mom's like, oh, I remember that. But then she'll say this, I remember that, and I'll remember the people who I went to church with and even my own family saying, when you read the book, honestly, when you read the book, you think, I can't believe people said that about things that seem so basic to what it means for us to be people of justice. Well, my mom has said to me, right, mom? Say amen. Shout, run the aisle. Um, yeah. So say, I just, what's, what strikes me is how when I look back, so many of the people who I went to church with, now we look back just 50 years and say they were on the wrong side of that history. This week, um, I, I got a letter, and I, I need to be careful with this. I got a letter from somebody outside of our community who, through a set of circumstances, came to find out that we have a couple of groups that are discussing the book, Be the Bridge. And I'm really thankful for those of you who are participating with Ashley and Julie and others in those conversations. But I got a five-page letter this week about all the reasons we should not be doing that. And some of it is because we're kind of different theological traditions than the person who was writing me. But this person said, and here's a quote, Christians are not responsible for the sins of other people. They're not responsible for sins of the other people in the past and as such should not feel remorse for acts they did not commit. Christians are not responsible for sins committed by people who happen to have a culture in common. I didn't know how to write this back, but that statement reminded me of a theological tension. Hang with me for just a couple of minutes. We're going to go to the deep end of the pool here for just a second. There's kind of a theological conflict between two thinkers. One is a, a guy that you may know, Augustine, who articulated what we oftentimes think of as original sin. But for Augustine, if you read Augustine in a certain kind of way, it's almost as though Augustine says, we are born in sin, quite literally, and there's nothing we can kind of do about that. And so if you read Augustine in a certain kind of way, you can read, we are a mess, we will always be a mess, and kind of the best God can do is overlook our sin. Now, there was a thinker around the same time, a guy named Pelagius, who just didn't like that. And he said, no, every time a child is born, they are born in complete innocency, and eventually they too fall and kind of repeat the sins. But here's the thing, they're kind of denied this idea of original sin. Now, sometimes we get accused of this in the Wesleyan tradition because our, we would say back to Augustine, that is so hopeless. We are convinced that the grace of God and the Spirit of God can transform us to be in the body, in the present, what God wants us to be. We call that the optimism of grace. You should have said amen there, amen. Then we don't have to just be stuck in our sinfulness. But we condemn Pelagius as a heretic and essentially what this person wrote me is kind of what Pelagius would say. Like, Brent's not responsible for the stuff David did. That's on David. It's not on Brent. And I want to say, well, that's kind of true. But that's really naive. Because I've known them both for a long time. 
David has really messed Brent up. In some good ways. But we've had some talks. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, you, you and I know that's kind of naive. That when we are born, we are born. We don't even know ourselves apart from relationship to others. And we're shaped in a particular family in a particular time. We're shaped and born into a particular culture. And by the way, the root word of culture is cult. We're kind of worshipped into ways of seeing and being in the world. So if I could go back to my reading this summer, I, the thing I constantly can't get over is how people who called themselves Christians for 250 years went to church and then went home to their slaves. And for 100 more years, went to church but thought it was good for everything to be segregated. Now, they didn't kind of, they weren't born into that view. Generation after generation after generation. And so part of what we have to do is we have to constantly say, how have we been shaped? And hopefully we've heard some prophetic voices but not just in this issue, but how many other issues does the Lord need to speak prophetic words to us about the ways that we have come to see the world that are not the ways God would have us see the world, but he wants to reform our hearts. But oftentimes when it happens, we get a violent rejection. I have to tell you just a funny story. The other thing that happened this week so Tuesday, I was invited, uh, we had a district meeting over at First Church, the pastors, and uh, the district superintendent, who was at Middleton today, the district superintendent, um, he put a panel together with Brian, pastor at First Church, and Tony, the new pastor at Caldwell, and me, to talk about preaching during COVID. But what he did was really, he just got the three of us in constant trouble all the time. And so he said to me a couple of times, hey, Scott, I've been watching online, and a few weeks ago, you said something really prophetic. Tell everybody what you said about this, right? And I would be like, oh, like these people, you've at least been with me for five years. You kind of know what you were getting into today. And if you didn't like it, you are gone about four years ago. I mean, like you, you kind of know what you're, but these people don't really know me. But I would say these things anyway. So he set me up on kind of nationalism, and I said things. And Now, somebody grabbed me on my way out and said, thank you for being so prophetic today. And I thought, oh, dear Lord, I'm in trouble. Thank you for being so prophetic. Now, this is the truth. I came back to the office, and there was an anonymous letter from inside waiting for me, threatening me for being prophetic about the very thing I just was prophetic about in front of the pastor's. Now, I'm not all that bothered by either letters I got this week. I'm a, I knew what I was getting myself into. It's called Monday. But the letter made me wonder, why is it, why is it that we oftentimes react to the prophetic in our life? This morning, we come to a table. And if we take the text seriously this morning, we come to a table of our own making. For in the parable, Jesus 
the son dies not because the son breaks his body and sheds his blood, but because the religious who want to keep control of the vineyard break his body and shed his blood. And so we come to the table and it speaks prophetic words to us and invites us to see life differently. But we do come to a table of our own making, but a table transformed by the grace and mercy of God. A God who refuses to give up on us. (laughs) A God who keeps sending the voice of the prophet into our lives. A God who is still looking for a people, not a perfect people, but a people who will respond to the prophetic voices in their lives by saying, have mercy on me, O God. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. A people who have absolutely no problem saying, see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me into deeper ways of understanding and being part of your vineyard. God, we come today to a table, um, a table that asks us, how long are we going to carry this stuff from generation to generation? I'm haunted by this text. I... um, I can't help but think about grandchildren and great-grandchildren 50 years from now. I know they will look back at my life and laugh and have some critiques and notice things that I, in this moment, cannot see. But I pray they will look back and say, Grandpa had a soft heart to the things of God. I pray when people look back at this era in the church, they will not see a people who carried forward the sins that they had been handed. They were a people who who heard the prophet's voice and who welcomed the Son to come and make all things new. And so help us as we gather around this table, um, soften our hearts to your stuff. Search us and know us. We confess uh, so much of the brokenness of this table is ours. But all the grace is yours. And so transform us. May our rejections not be the last word in our relationship with you. May your grace and love be the last word. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray.